This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello and welcome to Philosophy Takes on the News. We were away last week, or at least I was, but we're back again for another slice of philosophy influence chat about the headlines. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 22nd of September. This is the week that saw the funeral of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, with Ukrainian forces having won significant victories over the past fortnight. And there's assessment of recent floods in Pakistan and reports of more floods in Nigeria. So this week, we're going to think about the death of the Queen, protest and mourning and government business during that period of mourning. We'll also see what else we get on to as always. The past fortnight, of course, has been a time of sombre reflection brought on in part, perhaps by the knowledge that during the next uncertain period of our lives, we may all be dealing with people less talented and less sure-footed than we've been used to. Which obviously brings me to this week's guests. Uh, joining me today, uh, we have Graham A. Forbes, who's Honorary Senior Lecturer in Philosophy here at Kent. Hi, Graham. Hi, nice to be back. Uh, multi-talented writer and broadcaster Julian Bagini. Hi, Julian. Yeah, hi. I like your phrase, philosophy-influenced chat there. We'll see how much influence there is. <laughs> And a new guest for PTOTN this week, we've got Tom McClelland, who's lecturing philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Hi, Tom. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, and great to have all three of you with us. OK, so let's get to our first item. Since we last published an episode, uh, the news in the UK and in many other parts of the world has been dominated by the death of Queen Elizabeth II. There have been many reflections on her life and some albeit fewer reflections on what this might mean for the UK and for the various parts of its constitutional infrastructure. Her death raises all sorts of issues that we can debate. In later episodes, I think we'll probably have an in-depth and reflective discussion about republicanism. Um, today, though, we'll probably think about some more immediate issues, uh, perhaps the right to protest, the supposed value of personified stability in an uncertain world, which we heard quite a bit of in the last couple of weeks, and that extraordinary cue. Um, Graham, do you want to start things off for us? Yes, okay. Um, so I'm relatively rare as a, a an academic in that I'm probably some kind of monarchist. I I do buy some of these arguments about the advantages of um, stability and and having sort of a, a locus of, of national identity that isn't a political figure. And, I mean, as, as you say, we can get on at another time to debates about whether those arguments stack up. But one of the things that I was really struck by, and I was actually reading a, a piece in uh, GQ, which is not something I normally read, but it was shared by a friend on Facebook and, and was really good, of someone describing the experience of being in the queue. And it's definitely deserving of capital letters there. you know. And one of the things they basically said was, having been through the pandemic, where we had this period of collective trauma, but without the sense of actually being with other people. Um, and, and the Queen, for many people, was someone who was a, a voice of unity um, when she did that address to the nation during the pandemic. That people had felt like they needed some kind of collective mourning for all of that. And the Queen's death gave 
the queue an opportunity to do that. So everybody in the queue, according to this journalist that he spoke to, had some story about why they wanted to stand for 14 hours to, to do this thing. So you've got this, this really interesting idea that we need some kind of public ritual. Um, so someone like Confucius would be very keen on, on this. We need to ritualize our, our morning. And we've got this institution that allows us to collectively do that and, and creates new institutions in that the queue becomes this new entity that starts to be its own thing. People join the queue to have been in the queue and to be able to tell stories later about the thing that will never happen again of the 14 hour queue, you know? Um, so I think, I think there's something really interesting about the need that we have to have collective rituals and the need that we have to have kind of collective mourning, partially because the queen felt like everybody's granny in some sense, but, but partially because the things that the, the country has been through collectively in the last few years sort of seemed to naturally afford this kind of symbolic moment of collective stocktaking. Um, and so I think a lot of this is about the queen and, and her life of service, but also about the place that the country is in at the moment and a felt need for coming together that was really striking. Even, even a lot of the people who are quite cynical about this um, I saw commenting that that it really felt like there was something special going on in the, in the public mood. Okay, thanks, Graham. Actually, you strike me as as the very typical GQ reader, but that's perhaps discussion for another time. Julian, Tom, any thoughts about that? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, Graham puts the case um, pretty well. I mean, cards on the table. I'm what I'd call like a soft Republican. I mean. I just think monarchy is so ridiculous, it's almost embarrassing. But at the same time, I can see it sort of like seems to work and there are more important things to worry about. So, you know, I'm not going to mount the barricades for it. But I think what's um, one thing that's quite interesting, I think, about um, what, what Graham's saying there is I do think that sometimes the sort of Republican-minded people and the, the monarchists kind of talk past each other. Because, I mean, for the, I think the Republicans tend to get too um, hung up on the fact that if you were to make the case for establishing a monarchy, for example, yeah, as, as a first principle, it's, it is ludicrous. It's absolutely absurd. There's no way. You know, if you were starting a new country from scratch, you would say, I know, well, let's pick a family and of, of noble origin and let's make sure that their, their children, their eldest son, we, we'll change it to daughter maybe, um, you know, is head of state. That would be ridiculous. But, but the point is, the, the strength of the conservative argument for it is that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that, is already there. It has a history, and that's why it has it brings stability. It's be, because it's something that's been around for so long, and so therefore, you know, I think I think the Republicans have got to. If, if you really want to be a Republican and want to argue against the monarchy, you've got to take more seriously the idea that there might be good reasons for keeping something that you would never dream of establishing today. Uh, and I think that's a bit of a too complicated a thought for some of the more simple-minded Republicans. There's an old um, defence of monarchy. Well, the, the British Constitution that I really like, um, which is no one would choose this system, but it works. I think on, on that sort of historical weightiness of the monarchy, historical weightiness is something that's incredibly hard to duplicate. Because if we did come up with an alternative system, it certainly wouldn't have any historical weight for, for many decades, perhaps a few centuries. And that's just that's a long time to wait if you're trying to argue for an alternative system. Yeah, I mean, I mean on, on, sorry, on the other hand, I mean, I think I think 
I, I, I do see all these arguments, but the reason I'm still a bit of a Republican is that, I mean, I think or, or, whatever you look at, um, the conservative sort of idea, I think, is is to put in our minds this, this thought that you should be careful about what you dismantle because, you know, it's, it's easier to destroy than to create. And I think Burke probably said something along those lines, if not exactly that. And that, you know, you should be careful to have that certain respect, as it were, for what history has bequeathed us. Because if it's lasted this long, there's probably a good reason why it's lasted this long, etc., etc. Now, of course, the problem with that is that that's very good as a set of kind of warnings and things to bear in mind. But it's it's completely useless as a reason to never reform. Because there are lots of things. I mean, yeah, like women not having the vote. Look, women having the vote for centuries. It's worked perfectly right. It may seem irrational to you that women don't get the vote, but it's worked really well. Let's 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 not let's not start messing with that. So there are lots of things where the conservative argument wouldn't work. So really, you've got to just take these things into consideration as as important considerations alongside others. And I just think that when you look at um, other countries and even some young countries who have come up with very effective and models of uh, uh, an apolitical or sort of non-political presidency, like the Republic of Ireland, you know, Republic of Ireland's got a very a non-political um, head of state, but it's elected president. And I, th- I think that seems to work much better as, as a model. And you know, in a way, I think that although the, the, the sentimentality, the, the, the emotion that people felt about the monarchy is in a way a good reason to get rid of it. And what I mean by that is that I think this country has a problem in that it is so hung up on its past and its heritage and its being great and all that kind of stuff. And that if we can sort of shift that mindset and look, look, we're not the British Empire, we're not what we used to be, you know, it's very difficult to do all the time you've got this monarchy shackled around your neck. So you know, I, I kind of think the benefits of a of a, of a republic system would be to kind of you know jolt uh, the United Kingdom into the twentieth twenty first century um, from the nineteenth, where it's often stuck. Seems like an important part of the defence of the monarchy is that it's politically neutral. Most people would agree that if the monarch was interfering with politics all the time, then that would be a bad thing. It's only because they're politically neutral it's okay. But I think what Julian's point suggests is that maybe you can't see it as politically neutral. There's something very politically loaded about this idea of hereditary power and historical significance. It's a it's a very backward looking political ideology that might pull against the kind of forward looking progressive political ideology. So maybe that idea of um, political neutrality is kind of a fig leaf for something which is absolutely laden with political significance. Okay, I want to push back there because I think that that, I mean, just looking at the history of how these things have gone, that kind of undercomplicates things in an important sense. So as it were, precisely having the backward looking thing enables one to be more progressive because it makes being progressive less scary. So actually, if you look at the the Queen's history and people have been very keen to find all of the, cherry pick all of these bits from, from her history that she was good personal friends with Nelson Mandela and was one of the people behind the scenes clearly pushing for a better relationship between Britain and South Africa as apartheid came to an end. She was um, very much one of the key diplomats that allowed the troubles in Northern Ireland to come to an end. That that with often a symbolic brooch or a raised eyebrow or something, that there's this sense that on many issues, the Queen was able to make things apolitical, 
Because if someone as clearly conservative a figure as the Queen is warmly shaking Nelson Mandela by the hand, this can't be a scary progressive thing to see the end of apartheid. You know, that having women having the vote where one has been a monarch for, you know, adequately for years, the, these things actually um, allow the people who are scared by change to embrace it more easily. And I think, I mean, particularly with with Elizabeth II, I mean, that really has been, you know, there's been a lot of change. And indeed, the, Bur the, the Burkean argument that, that Julian mentioned before, the conservative argument of that kind, Burke was very much a progressive. He was of conservative theorists, one that was in favour of change. It just had to be slow and organic change rather than revolutionary change, which which I think is is um, fits nicely with a, a a lot of what Julian was saying. But actually, we've seen the monarchy reform a lot um, by itself um, over the last century. We can see directions in which it could go, such as the Scandinavian monarchies, where they have even less political role, or, as you say, the Republic of Ireland, which branched off our political system in the 1920s. Um, there was a civil war, but after the civil war, <laughs> um, set up the current system. I quite like avoiding the civil war bit, but um, but there's you know there are directions for travel where we have something very similar to the current system with many of its advantages and hopefully some of the historical weightiness because it's an evolution rather than a revolution, but but are not the system that we have now. And the fact that it's an evolution, not a revolution, makes it less scary for a lot of people um, who, who you need on board in your polity. So, so even though I'd, I'd, I'd agree there that the monarchy has obviously changed a huge amount in the time of the reign of Elizabeth II, but my feeling is generally that the monarchy changes slightly after the population has changed, right? So it's it's not that the monarchy is ever leading change. It's that everyone else has changed despite the monarchy. And then eventually the monarchy catches up. So so um, so think about cases with um, gender, for example, There's relatively recent reforms in the monarchy that have changed how um, titles get passed down to, to female heirs and so on. And that's way after, way after the rest of the country has caught up on that with other areas of the law, for example. I'd say in that case, just to defend them, it didn't actually make any difference um, for most of that time. They changed the law at the point at which it w could potentially make any difference. So it wasn't as it were that it was a, a regressive force. It's just that the, the laws that were in place were kind of out of step, but not relevant. But the, the significance of the monarchy is in the symbolism, right? So it's still of symbolic significance, even if it has no practical consequence. We had this big, well-funded symbol saying, don't worry, I know there's all this talk of gender equality, but we still believe that the truth is, you know, roughly how it was seen a century ago. It's that kind of backward-looking force that's still there. So as I thought, uh, me thinking that later on in another episode, we'll have an in-depth reflective discussion of republicanism and monarchism. Guess what? We're doing it right now, everyone. So, I, so I wanted um, to talk about I mean, the queue. Very... <laughs> 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 well, just like, I think... my, my main thought of that about that is not a, not, a, not a philosophical one. It's just Britons just love to queue, right? Um uh, I mean, it's just it's thinking then about uh, republicanism and, and monarchism, and like Julian, I'm I'm a kind of well a soft or a mild republican. Even though I think you're putting up a very good case, Graham. In fact, just let, let me put it slightly uh, differently or, or with new ideas. So, 
I mean, I've always thought that, uh, you know, we, we, we'd be better off as a country for if we were a republic rather than a, a monarchy for some of the reasons Julian was mentioning. And in fact, I, I often try and strip away some of um, what are important but incidental issues, such as the amount of palaces and the amount of money they have, because you can have all sorts of monarch, uh, constitutional monarchies which are which are far, far more slim down than, than that. Uh, but there's there's one thing we haven't mentioned, but which it kind of is striking when you look at the the life of Queen Elizabeth II, which whatever one's views, I think is a has been a, an extraordinary life and one of duty and service. But actually, the, the the phrase that's often used of certainly the UK royal family and and our constitutional monarchy is that it's a gilded cage, and both of those parts seem important, right? There's a lot of gilding, right? They're never going to go hungry. They've got roofs over their heads and so on. But it is a it is a cage. Uh, and not just because they have to perform all sorts of things in their daily lives and shaking hands with people and asking them what they do, um, but all sorts of other things about who they can marry, what sort of lives they can lead. And, and you know, and often people will say, oh, but they, you know, that the monarch themselves could abdicate. But that's an enormous responsibility and a decision to make. None of us would ever have to be forced into that situation. We can more broadly live the types of lives we can, we want to lead, even if, we don't have the resources to do so. Um, and I think that there's, although it's a secondary reason, I think that there's, there's a reason not to have a constitutional monarchy because through dint of birth, these poor sods, whether they like it or not, have to be head of state or part of the family that's head of state. And, you know, I feel, I feel quite sorry for them sometimes. Longest argument against monarchy and in favour of republic, but it is something that, that strikes me in reading all the things. Yeah, it just follows up on a, a point I was meaning to make earlier in response to what Graham was saying, because, you know, this sort of lottery thing, the fact that it's a person, it's unjust to the person themselves, but also, you know, Graham's previous sort of defence was, was making quite a lot of, you know, how good a job the Queen has done. And, of course, a big problem is that, I mean, first of all, I think that, you know, the, 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 the deference has been a bit too much for my liking. I think if you wanted to do an objective assessment, it'd be a much more patchy, than is made out you know I heard one person say you know how she didn't put a step wrong in 70 years I thought well I think we can think of a few wrong steps straight away but fair enough I think given the impossibility of the task I agree you know it's hard to imagine someone doing a better job and that's the problem and that's the problem so it reflects this big debate that occurred in sort of classical Chinese philosophy between the Confucians and the legalists right so Confucius thought that the leader had to be a person of great virtue and this was and you, you led by the virtue of the leader and the problem there, of course, is, well, you know, how can you be sure you're going to get a virtuous leader? Where the legalists said, you know, you've got to have the laws and the principles in place. And the sort of like the pithy way of putting this is, you know, if you've got um, the, the laws and the principles in place, then, you know, uh, you've got the basis of a sound society indefinitely. If you're relying on virtuous leadership, it takes one bad leader to come in and everything's sort of thrown up in the air. And I think the monarchy is the same kind of way. I think in a way, because Elizabeth did... as good a job as a monarch could possibly do it's kind of like you know obscured the fact that that's a huge gamble to take and i haven't particularly been looking forward to charles becoming king to be honest for that reason um he's he signaled that he's going to kind of become a less opinionated uh less dabbling person but um yeah and, and you know and, and charles isn't the worst you could get either so you know, relying on that you know the a lottery of birth to give you someone of the you know, stature and virtue to fulfil that role. It's a huge sort of social gamble, which eventually will fail, you know. <laughs> so bringing people up to be monarchs, I kind of see the K 
case for it, and then maybe Elizabeth II is a good advert for that. But I think there are plenty of people in the royal family who don't have her character, don't have her virtue. I think I think that's probably not too controversial to say. Um, name names, come on, name, okay. Andrew. For, for every Elizabeth, we get an Andrew, okay, and and it's only it's only kind of lottery that we ended up with 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 a, a good monarch. Who, who knows what Charles will do? But thinking longer ahead, surely it's just a matter of time before you get somebody who who is really not suited to to being a monarch. And so even if we allow that this is the best way to create a virtuous head of state, it's still problematic. So think about any other role in society. We'd be uncomfortable with the idea of bringing people up to that role from birth. So let's say, let's imagine that the best heart surgeons would be people who were brought up as heart surgeons from birth. And if you're born to the heart surgeon family, um, you're going to be a heart surgeon. And even if the statistics showed us that, you know, it's going to save loads of lives, We'd still think it would be an awful thing to do because you can't you can't do that kind of thing on the basis of birth alone. Right? So why is it that head of state is so different? There's something about this role that makes us comfortable with the idea that it should be based on birth and people should be brought up to the role whether they like it or not. I mean, so so there's an easy response to that, which is let's look at the other methods of choosing our leaders. Boris Johnson is not necessarily an advert for having people who want to be leaders climbing the greasy pole and lying wherever they can um, in order to get to the top. So there are the points you're making are all right, but I also can see that there are deep flaws with the other system. And actually, I'm immensely glad that Boris Johnson was never our head of state. Well, look, so am I going, but it's a bad analogy because Boris Johnson became head of state by being uh, the leader of a political party, uh, you know, in, in this sort of parliamentary adversarial system. If you have a presidential system whereby... It's, it's taken away from the party politics, which it can be done. You wouldn't have the same thing. And the second thing is, I'd rather, I mean, you know, because we're looking at something which is going to be a largely ceremonial and symbolic role, it won't matter so much. Even if we did have a Boris Johnson presidency for good, what a, what a horrible thought, for, you know, five years or 10 years. In 10 years, it'd be over and be back to somebody else and they wouldn't be able to do much harm. So, you know, at least it would be, you know, at least it's also a way of, of making the people accountable for who they choose, you know. So, I, 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 you know, I think in a way this is um, the thing the Republicans, uh, the monarchists, sorry, always like to throw back, say, well, what would you prefer? And they point to a really horrible elected politician as though that would be the alternative. But it's, it's not quite the same thing at all. And I also think it's kind of missing the point, right, because even if it's true that the way to get the best leaders is a hereditary system, that doesn't mean that that hereditary system is fair, right? There's something, as I was arguing before, there's something deeply problematic about bringing people up to a job. So maybe it's true that, that the royals would be better heads of state than an elected representative could ever be. It still doesn't make it a just system. And, and I'm not actually saying that. I just want to be clear. So so we need to get the, um, the claims square here. So I wasn't saying the hereditary system is the best system. I'm saying the objections that this is an unreliable system look like they apply to other systems as well, which have not always been reliable. So it's not an, a saying we should prefer this system, but our dispreference for this system might not need to be so strong um, as to rule it out a, you know, from, from the start that we might think, look, actually, look at how well the system works, partially because we might not think that people are born with essences where they're good leaders or bad leaders, but actually... Being brought up makes quite a difference to how well you do it. And if you're brought up with the lesson that duty is paramount and that you must do everything um, for the benefit of others and not for yourself, and, and you're brought up believing this, you, 
you're more likely to live by that than if you're brought up thinking that what you need to do is win a competition against other people to be to win elections. To, to misquote Churchill, perhaps a constitutional monarchy is the worst form of government apart from all the others. Great. Actually, but Graham's argument is basically saying that both both a monarchy and a presidency are unreliable, but the monarchy is also unfair, right? So, I mean, yeah, you've got a system which is unfair and unreliable or just unreliable. I think I'll go for the one that's just unreliable. You know? And in fact, I think the thing going through my head from the last five minutes is... The, the, I mean, I mean, I've thought this uh, quite a few times, but it's the little uh, point that Julian made, which, which might got lost. So I'm just going to echo it a, a, again. Um, the point about um, voting or nominating, whatever system of voting or nomination we have, so there's having a sort of process, which isn't a hereditary process for a head of state, is that if we get a baden, then we have to take responsibility for that in a way that you're not quite with a hereditary. I mean, of course, in one sense, the country takes responsibility for having such a setup, but we've got no um, no choice over over what happens because it's just a bloodline, right? Whereas, in a, if we get a bad one, if we get President Boris Johnson for five years, the least we can say, "Oh my God, what have we done?" and hold our hands up in our and saying, "We must reform the the system." It's 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 part on us. Oh, hang on, uh, Tom, you come back in, and then Graham. Yeah, so I think I think that sounds like a good thing, but the flip side of it is one of the things we might look for in a head of state is being apolitical and it looks yeah. like if somebody is elected then by definition it's not apolitical that's yeah. right so, so so the very idea of them being elected pulls against it so i kind of see how you might think that something hereditary avoids that now we kind of argued earlier that actually even hereditary power isn't completely apolitical but that looks like the kind of tightrope we have to walk when working out the the best way of deciding on a head of state so in fact so when i uh, i said and echoed julian that i'm a soft or mild Republican, perhaps in a, I mean, Junior didn't say it, he may, he may, may agree with me, but part of my soft or mild Republicanism is not just that I think, I think as Julian said as well, there might be other more important, more pressing things to, to focus on. One thing is that I think if we got rid of the hereditary system, I think we'd lose something that would be irreplaceable. And I think one of them would be what you just pointed out, Tom, that, you know, any sort of voting nomination system in any sort, no matter how careful, in some ways politicizes the process. Although I have to say, I think hereditary system is also a kind of political process because it's a decision made about who gets to be head of state. But even so, we would lose something. But I think overall, we've probably got more more to gain. Come on, Graham, you come back in. Okay, so a couple of things. I mean, so one, um, Michael D. Higgins, I just want to say I'm personally a huge fan of his. Like, um, he is a, a big advocate for philosophy and uses his role as president of Ireland to advocate for a sort of philosophical education um, and, like, not just in Ireland. But also, our constitution is weirder than people give credit for. So actually, it's not that we can't get rid of monarchs. We did in the so-called glorious revolution, obviously not glorious if you're Irish, but the, the the revolution where we brought William of Orange in. So it's part of the constitution, we can do that. But going right back to the Scottish constitution pre-Union, Dun Scotus um, was brought in as a philosophical expert and came up with the principle that if the monarch failed to do their duty, they could be replaced. And so the Scots chose a new monarch after the English king had kidnapped the the Scottish king, um, holding him hostage. That the Scots, based as far as I understand on Dun Scotus's philosophical advice, um, decided that it was possible to change monarch if they weren't doing their job properly. And of course, um, Charles the First also was replaced 
um, by Oliver Cromwell. I mean, exactly the kind of revolutionary thing that Burke is not going to be a fan of. Can I just uh, get us to change tack a little bit? There was something uh, I mentioned in the intro, which has been has broken through into media reports, certainly in many outlets where people have been debating something, and that's the right to protest. So I think, as we've seen in the in the UK, parts of the UK, some people have held up placards and shouted a few things. Uh, against monarchism, a few against the Queen, but most of most of which have been against monarchism and, and being pro-republic, and then have been cautioned or indeed arrested, and then perhaps de-arrested, which is this new term that's that's come in, um, reflecting the, the the new UK legislation about right to protest. I'm just wondering what the three of you think about these uh, protests that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Tom. I think Republicans have been faced with a bit of a moral dilemma here, because if you want to object to a system, then times of transition are the most effective time to protest. Right? It seems a bit arbitrary to do it in the middle of a period of rule, for example, you want to do it at the point of transition. But in a hereditary system, those points of transition are also a point where somebody has died and it can look deeply offensive to be protesting um, uh, when people are trying to mourn somebody's death. So on the one hand, that might make you unsympathetic to the protests, thinking they should they should kind of put their politics aside for a second and respect the fact that somebody's died and that people are mourning. But on the other hand, it looks like hereditary system kind of catches um, Republicans in a kind of catch-22 situation where if they protest in the middle of a reign, it just seems kind of arbitrary, why now? But if they protest at the transitional point, then they're doing something offensive and disrespectful. So there's kind of no good time to make your case against the monarchy. I mean, if I were building a system, I would want to build it with exactly that feature. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the coronation could be a a good time, you know, in the sense that, uh, yeah, there's no, we, we passed the grief. So it's still on the occasion. So I guess we get an opportunity, but you are right. And I think there's, um, you know, I think I think that the demand that people are respectful has been massively sort of overplayed, and essentially it has felt sometimes that to express any kind of monarchist sentiment at this time is, I mean, Republicans. Okay, I get left right confusion. I get monarchist Republican confusion. It's terrible. Um, at this time, it, it, you know, it, you just get shouted shouted down, even if you do it very mild, mildly and and respectfully. So I think one of one of the things, a few things on sort of social media that um myself and a few others were doing was to point to some of the absurdities going on uh, with the ironic idea that it's what it's what she would have wanted right because I think that some of the absurdity of what happened was was made clear by the fact would the queen really have wanted people not to bicycle uh, would she really have been heartened by an endorsement from sympathy from Anne Summers you know uh, risque lingerie company whatever so uh, <laughs> but yeah you're right it's, it's absolutely put people in the spot right now so, so one thing that I think is really interesting and goes back to kind of where, where we started this with the ritual significance of things is, look, Twitter has carried on being Twitter throughout this and no one's got arrested for posting things on Twitter, let alone de-arrested. It's in the specific context where you're at a, you know, you're at a public place where people have gathered for a purpose, you know, to, to ritualize mourning to see a coffin go past or to, you know, sort of see a grieving fan. And it's in those sort of physical locations where people are trying to express in a certain ritualized way um, a certain collective emotion 
that protest seems particularly difficult because it, as it were, undermines the possibility of a certain collective feeling where on Twitter, we don't expect respect for that kind of thing. You know, Twitter is is always somewhat um, anarchic. You get waves of mood and often backlash it, but, but it's much noisier as a space. But there's something interesting about this need to have uh, a space in which people experience a collective mood. Um, so just to take it away from this particular example for a moment, people being noisy in theatres, you know, people having a chat with their mate during a play, theatre audiences really don't like that. Um, and they're very happy when such people get ejected from the building. Is this a problem for free speech? Well, no, because the point of being an audience in a play is you're, you're having a certain experience presented to you as, as a collective audience for a particular purpose. You, you've got this kind of mutual agreement that that's what you're engaged in and a kind of communitarian thought rises to the surface that people ought to be allowed to enjoy the play. So when you have some kind of collective experience, I can understand why people object to that collective experience being disrupted. Um, though, of course, there's something particularly interesting about collective experiences that take place in public places where people now find that they're excluded from those public places if they disagree with the, the collective experience that is being imposed on them. So, I mean, probably some of the arresting and then de-arresting people was harsher than I would go for. But actually, I mean, to go, to go back to the queue, the, the GQ article was saying that there were far too many police there for such an aggressively self-policing entity that anybody attempts to push in earlier in the queue would be met by, you know, open hostility from the, the members of the queue because it was such a, a collective thing. So I think these kind of ideas of whether we, whether and how we experience things collectively and whether we think of protest as, as requiring disrupting such collective activity, like that is incredibly interesting for me. I mean, you might, you might say, you know, the whole point of protest is to be disruptive. That's the mark of like a um, successful, effective protest. So to, to make the analogy with your theatre case more accurate, it wouldn't be people having a chat in the theatre. It'd be people actually protesting at the theatre because there's something deeply offensive in the play or something like that. So I don't think that free speech should protect people having a chat in a theatre. I think that is annoying and I'd be one of the people telling them to hush. But if somebody stood up and objected because there's something you know politically or morally problematic about the play if i disagreed with them i'd be annoyed that they disrupted the play but i guess maybe i would want to defend their right to do so no i'd throw them out yeah. no i think that's true and there was something not... <laughs> well yeah but throw out is different i think that's with a protest that's what you expect i mean you know um, civil disobedience is often based on the idea that you, you take the consequences and the consequence you'd expect for standing up and protesting is to be ejected but not to be slammed into a cell, right? <laughs> That's an important um, difference. Yeah. But I think Tom's bind is, is is a really interesting one because it's not just a practical one. I mean, there seems to be a matter of principle here because I think generally people think, generally speaking, people do think, yeah, you know, it is just wrong. Whether you get arrested for it or not, probably you shouldn't be arrested for it. But it's highly disrespectful to, you know, disrupt a, a piece of mourning. But the point about the monarchy, right, is this thing about, you know, it embodies, I mean, it is, it is, it embodies a, a, it's an embodied political system. You can't disentangle the, the personages from the institution. 
which means that it's not the same. A royal funeral is not the same as a civic funeral. It's not the same as a funeral of a previous prime minister or something. It is bound up with the system. So if you want to protest against the system, you know, you kind of, you can't insist on that kind of, you know, private mourning public, you know, protest distinction. You, you, these things have to blur. I think that's a pr- the price you pay if you have having a this system is that, in a sense, there's no such thing as a private event for a member of the royal family. It's a civic event, and that means if there's civic protest, yeah, even a funeral could get disrupted legitimately. Otherwise, you're you're not allowing the your citizens, although we're actually technically subjects, which is another thing that bothers me, to you know express their 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 legitimate dissent. I, I think this takes us back to Simon's point earlier about being royal being kind of both a blessing and a curse the gilded cage right that if you're just an ordinary citizen then somebody coming and heckling at your funeral would you know clearly be unacceptable whereas maybe one of the things that makes it acceptable if it is in the case of the queen is because she's not just a person we've made her more than just a person if she were just a person she could reasonably expect um to not get that kind of protest at her funeral but the whole point of the system is we've made her more than a person we've made her this symbol and if people want to argue against that symbol then maybe it's the suitable time for them to do so so the, the uncomfortable thing that happens there is part of an uncomfortable thing about the whole idea of monarchy actually it's making people more than people and making them uh, endure the consequences of that though one thing i want to bring up in this connection just because i find it uh, really striking as a way that our constitution has adapted to some of these difficulties is the um constitutional tradition at the state opening of parliament of the Dennis Skinner heckle. So um, so we've got this this weird sequence of events where Black Rod, the, the, now the king's representative, knocks on the door to the House of Commons um, after it's been slammed in their face. And then they come in and they summon the commons to the lords um, to hear the queen's, uh, or now the king's speech. And Dennis Skinner, for many years, had the role of heckling Black Rod that he took upon himself. And Hugh Edwards in the commentary would be very quietly sort of saying, and I wonder what he'll go on this year, perhaps the economy. And it would get just built into the the rituals of the state opening of parliament that Dennis Skinner was going to heckle. And then Dennis Skinner loses his seat. I guarantee you there will be someone from the Labour benches who takes it on themselves, you know, to do the Dennis Skinner heckle. Um, because it's such an important part of the constitution. This is the bit where symbolically we say Republicans are part of the Commons too, and um, and so the the role of ritual here I just find endlessly fascinating in in allowing the possibility for some of these tensions to get worked out, or at least to to, to get done in a way that we can all live with. We sort of find ourselves with these with a modus vivendi of some kind. Listen, um, that's absolutely fascinating, uh, guys. Let's leave things there uh, and we'll see you in the next part where we'll be doing things under the radar. And welcome back. Um, Two quick adverts. In our previous episode, we welcomed Kieran Oberman from the LSE. Um, Kieran and I, though, both forgot to mention that he has his own soon-to-be, I'm sure, award-winning podcast, Migration Ethics. It's well worth a listen, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, secondly, as if I didn't have enough to do, over the summer I launched a second podcast called Philosophy Gets Schooled. 
It's aimed at school teachers and their students. Each episode, I talk with teachers about various topics in school philosophy curricula, focusing on the topics uh, in A-level philosophy and religious studies, um, Scottish hires and international baccalaureate specifications. We've published lots of episodes on moral philosophy and ethics. Between now and Christmas, we're going to be publishing episodes on epistemology and philosophy of religion, all being well. So if you fancy it, please check it out. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Remember, of course, that advertising slot is available for anyone, including those lovely people at the New Statesman, The Economist, Prospect, the LRB, etc. Anyone who fancies giving me a free annual subscription. Uh, And it's worth reading Prospect because Julian Bugini, Man About Town, has, of course, his regular column there answering all of your philosophical uh, questions. Right, enough of that. Um, During the period of mourning for the Queen, regular UK politics and government seemed to stop. Um, But that was really only appearance, I think. Behind the headlines, Liz Truss's new government has been getting to grips with implementing its policy agenda, quite a radical policy agenda. Um, The parliamentary debate on a massive multi-billion pound amount of money made available to stave off a cost of living crisis was shortened as news broke of the Queen's illness. It seems it's not going to get much scrutiny at all. Um, The ban on fracking was rumoured to have been lifted in the UK, um, as was attacks on sugary drinks and foods. Um, If these are ideas just being floated, then it's fine, but reports suggest that they were more than this. Um, This all seems a bit sneaky, Uh, as an understatement. Should we suspend policy during such a period? Um, Have they just used the mourning period to get things done under the radar? I mean, of course, they do have to move fast to stave off many crises, of course. Um, Anyone want to say more about this? Tom? This is something that concerned me too. And of course, there's a couple of different layers of public scrutiny. There's the scrutiny that uh, a policy has in Parliament. And as you've explained, that's kind of been curtailed of late. But there's also the scrutiny that a policy gets by the public, and that might have been missing as well, um, because the public haven't been told as much about it as they would have been under normal circumstances. So on the day of Her Majesty's funeral, I went on BBC News page, and the first 14 news stories were stories about the funeral. Okay, so there's only 15th, 16th news story that was about something else. Uh, and I think this raises some difficult questions about what exactly the news should be telling us and how it should be prioritising information. Um, so one angle might be this, that really the news should just be giving us whatever we find interesting. And it seems that most people are most going to be interested in stories about the Queen's funeral. That's that's the big event. News places like the BBC are guided by public interest. And whatever the 14th most important story about the funeral was, was more important than an update on Ukraine, for example, or on these policies you're talking about. An alternative angle is the point of news is to make sure you've got an informed citizenry, an informed citizenry in a democracy who can scrutinise policies and express their opinions, maybe write letters to their MPs and so on. So even if the public care more about another story, part of the function of the news is to say, look, there's this policy and it affects you and you need to know about it. So if needed, you can make a noise about it. So I think... Um, news broadcasters are in a bit of a bind there. I'm not sure what the solution is. Does it make a difference to you, Tom, whether we're talking about a public service broadcaster or a commercial one? Because presumably, you know, if you're, um, I won't name any, if you're a particular newspaper, the particular constituency and, and your readers uh, want to read 
page after page of um, royal stuff, you could say, well, you know, that that's their market. Is it different with a public service broadcaster like BBC or Channel 4? Well, I think even ITV has some public service remit, doesn't it, I think? So my take would be that if it's a public service um, broadcaster, that duty to make sure that people are suitably informed is kind of like baked into the constitution of the place. But even if it's not baked into the constitution, it should still be there, but morally rather than legally. Right? There's, there's an obligation there to kind of perform that function, even if it's not kind of built into the rules of your particular news provider. One of the things about the BBC, of course, is they still have coverage of other things. So I've still been following um, the war in Ukraine quite closely. It's um, really interesting. They've got some special topic tabs on the website and you see how far climate has been pushed down by other things. Um, but they've still been reporting news. It's still available on the website. So it's just the most read column that it's getting shoved down to 16th, 17th place in but anybody who is wanting to be informed still has access to the information and um, so it's the way it's being presented so maybe the issue comes out more with radio and television then when it's not you know it's not the information's there you really can kind of measure in minutes just how little attention has been given to stories that aren't the queen's funeral yeah or column inches in in newsprint um, another thing just worth hmm. highlighting in this particular case is i don't want to put it all on the media because some of it is partially that we've been through a very politically strange period when normally you would expect a governing party to produce a manifesto which outlines their policy and we get to know what their policies are before we get the government with those policies. But this, um, we've not had a, a king's speech yet. We've not, you know, outlining the policies of uh, the trust ministry. We've not had. Uh, a manifesto. We were told during the um, leadership election that lots of policies were ones we would have to wait and see. Um, so one of the processes that normally exists to let us know what to expect from our government, like those, those processes just haven't happened in this case. So even ignoring the fact that um, there have been events that have overshadowed it in the news, Lots of the normal processes haven't been happening anyway, though this might have consequences later on. So any legislation that they want to get, for example, through the Lords, the Lords don't have to um, give way to the government because it's not a manifesto policy, because none of them are. Um, so, But budget measures have a special constitutional status that the Lords can't object to in the same way. But um, the kinds of measures that they can rush through are only going to be policies. They're not going to be laws um, because of the way our system works. I'm just struck by in the discussion about the media, you know how we how Tom was phrasing it, and then how you thought, Graham. So there's this. I mean, I think Tom's right. There's a kind of bind for broadcasters here, and there is kind of guided by the public interest. But I mean, it's what kind of people are signalling. Uh, you know, in their millions, what they want to hear, it seems. But then there's an issue about what they need to hear and need to read. And I think that's something that that, that strikes me as, as absolutely crucial here because there's loads of things going on. I mean, you mentioned climate change has gone down the, 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 the agenda on the BBC website even. But there's loads of things going on that whether people um, know about it or not, they need to know about it. And I suppose that's, 
And of course, so if they get fed a certain amount of news and quite a lot of news, then they don't realise what they don't know. And I suppose there's there's a kind of duty here from broadcasters, particularly public service, but perhaps anyone who's a who's a journalist then also needs to be thinking about what public needs to hear about, not just what they what they're wanting. Then there's a problem that if they put too much emphasis on what you need to hear, then somebody might just flip channels to Absolutely. the channel that gives them what they so want they to hear. So, they need so to get the client really is inescapable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's an empirical question actually about. I mean, I always feel when any kind of royal death happens that there's media overkill, and I always, and I, I do wonder how many people actually do want it. Actually, you know, um, you, you hear about the people grumbling about it. Um, I don't, don't hear that many people saying this is this is this is what we want wall to wall coverage. Because the, the 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 bizarre thing about it is there's very little to cover. Actually, I mean, the, the most frustrating thing about this was you know you turn you turn on the radio and you just have yet another sort of person reminiscing about how lovely the Queen was or something. Oh, someone speculating about what might happen at the funeral or won't happen, and who might be invited. I think the, if you if you look in contrast, the the FT weekend, the Financial Times weekend newspaper, um, gave about the weekend before the funeral gave about a couple of pages to to this, and it talked about things like constitutional um, implications, about pragmatics, about, about a secu- security operation, and how that was going to affect things, etc. And yeah, it did focus on, I think, some genuine sort of stories, and the rest of the news just just went on. And I kind of, you know, if you wanted just to sort of wallow in in this, then you know, there probably were channels and or, or newspapers you could go to. So actually, I mean, partly I wonder whether these the, the, a lot of these media outlets are mis- misjudging things because um, I know I'm at the Republican end of the spectrum, but I you know, but a lot of people I know are very supportive of the monarchy. They still don't want sort of minute by minute non-updates on what no one knows is happening. I mean, Graham, did you really want that? Were you glued to your television to sort of like hear about, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the former, former um, serving sort of, what do they called it, you know, lady-in-waiting to, to Queen Elizabeth who remembers the time she made a joke about jam on her scones? Um, so more than I was expecting to. So certainly I watched like the special episode of Antiques Roadshow that was on... Um, the Royal Yacht Britannia. Um, and that was very comforting. And it was, you know, lovely sort of hearing people talking about their experience cooking um, as the, you know, in the galley of this thing for heads of state. Like that was all very comforting. And and I can see the reason why that was put on. That was, of course, not a news show. That was Antiques Roadshow, which is there as a comfort blanket for the nation. Lots of it was excessive, but actually I think this is part of the the media model, right, is that Republicans complaining about the excesses of things also gets clicks. Um, People share stories because they're annoyed by them. This is how Twitter exists. So a lot of it is having people with an, an excessive love of being the informed one who can tell a story down the pub about the thing that they heard on the TV, you know, there's that. And then the people going, oh, I can't believe just how excessive all of this is. Both of them are ways of keeping this thing in the news. Um, and actually the one where you go, so we we raise a glass, you know, um, to the old queen and the new king and, you know, have a moment of quiet and then get on with things. Actually, I get the impression that that's, 
more or less what the monarchy would have been fine with. There was there was more stories of people complaining that the monarchy had forced football to cancel, followed by stories, you know, followed by comments going, here's the statement from the monarchy saying, you don't need to cancel events. Like all of that discussion took up a lot of bandwidth and it's not clear as it were that that was forced on anybody. That was people liking to complain about stuff and complain about other people complaining about stuff. And here we are spending a podcast complaining about people complaining about people complaining about stuff, you know, that, that we are giving yet more media attention to the very issue we're claiming is, is overexposed. Yeah. Perhaps we should talk about something else, but there's been nothing else happening in the news. Uh, Tom. It's all very meta, isn't it? But I was wondering if this ties us back to what we were saying earlier about respect as well. I, I worry that maybe one of the reasons that there was this wall-to-wall media coverage, often with very little new information, is that it might have felt disrespectful not to. It might have felt disrespectful to say, okay, well, we've covered what's going on. There's not much news today. Uh, uh, further news about the Queen. We've covered that in a minute. Now we're going to you know, spend more time talking about the footballs. And it almost seems disrespectful to, to the Queen to be doing that. So I wonder if these kind of background fuzzy ideas about respect might be partly responsible for what's going on. And maybe that's also something that viewers or listeners would experience as well. They might feel it's kind of offensive for the news to be moving on to anything else when something so weighty has happened, even though the news hasn't actually got anything more to say on the topic. Well, I, I think you're right about that, but I think it's, it's false, isn't it? I mean, what, yeah. what a lot of people were saying about the Queen was they admired her kind of, you know, that sort of keep calm and carry on and business-like kind of thing. So, again, going back to that jokey, it's what she would have wanted. I mean, the Queen didn't come across as the kind of person who believed that um, when there was a death, every, everything should stop and no important business should carry on. Or even that people, you know, who are not directly involved should kind of have their sort of day spoiled. So, you know, in a way, I think you show more respect uh, for the Queen by saying, you know, in all the Queen, we're going to keep calm and carry on. And we're going to keep continue to bring you the important things in the news, um, you know, with a little logo in the corner, maybe. So <laughs> I don't know, whatever it might be. But um, yeah, but whatever. I mean, so first of all, yeah, wear an armband, have an armband, or whatever it might be. So the respect thing, I think, was, was was somewhat misplaced. But at the end of the day, you know, you know, that should have been, even if people have that queasy feeling, it should be overcome. You know, there are so many, I mean, Christ, some of the things that happened in the last couple of weeks, you know, the situation in Ukraine is reaching a really dangerous position, right? As we've seen in the last couple of days with, you know, Putin making not particularly veiled threats to use uh, nuclear weapons, uh, we've got huge tensions in sort of Taiwan and and, and, and China. Uh, there's a, there's a cost of living crisis in which you know more and more people are being pushed into sort of like fuel poverty, food poverty. Just just call it poverty. Um, there's so much going on that it, 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 it there must be a way to be both respectful and to give this its proper due. It just seems absurd to me that these things weren't getting. Yeah, you know, like on the broadcast media, you're right. That's a real thing. I mean, there was one day; it was just almost comical. Comical. The, the yeah, the, the, at the top of the hour, they give you the news summary, and they gave you the headlines, and there were like many of these really weighty, important things. And then for the remainder of the hour, it was almost exclusively talking about, um, again, more non-information about the Queen dying, and it, it's just. You can't justify that imbalance, even if you say a certain amount of respect and a certain amount of coverage is. is Required. Anyway, I'm complaining about complaining about. 
I mean, so one interesting thing um, I want to bring up, again, it's, it's a kind of philosophical point about funerary practices, that to what extent do we think, as, as we've been sort of rhetorically claiming, that the point of a funerary practice is to do something that in some way kind of benefits the the deceased. So are we doing things um, because it's what the queen would have wanted or out of respect for the queen? You know, it seems that there's the locus of, of the thing is the person who's not there. Whereas in some sense for funerary practices, a lot of what's going on is helping the people who are there deal with grief. And, and you know, we, we have this kind of locus this is about, you know, like we play the favorite music of the person who's not there because it reminds us of them in a certain way. And I, I think a lot of what's going on isn't to do with what the Queen would have wanted, but to do with the fact that at a time where we've, we've been through a pandemic, we're concerned about the cost of living crisis that's looming, that's been very hard to miss, that we've got a new government that we don't really know what they're going to be like yet, but but many people are worried about that as well. Um, we've got a war going on in Europe. We've got climate change. There's lots of things. And I suspect a lot of people didn't realise how much a sense of stability the Queen had provided until it was taken away. And I think a lot of people were surprised by the extent to which they felt a need to indulge in nostalgia and, you know, reflect on their own experiences of the Queen um, and, and, and what she meant to them, probably more than is healthy, probably more than the Queen would have engaged in uh, at someone else's death. But, but probably that need, I think, was underestimated by a lot of people and, and indulged maybe more than it should have been. I think no disagreement from uh, <laughs> anyone else. Any more thoughts then on on, on this, uh, particularly going back to Liz Truss's government and what they're doing? I mean, they've got to get on and solve these things, but can they wait for Parliament to come back, give it it's proper a, scrutiny? It's, it's a tricky one, that. I mean, I feel like the, there hasn't been sufficient scrutiny at the level of Parliament, there hasn't been sufficient scrutiny at the level of the media. But I'm not really sure who's to blame for that. Right? The government has to get on. Um, so if they're doing things under the radar, perhaps they're doing it under the radar by accident. It's just an unfortunate situation. They aren't necessarily exploiting this for their gain. Or maybe they are. I don't know. It's quite difficult to, to, to see to see what they could do differently here. Uh, I think that's hard. So, to so I think um, I'm, I'm nearly there with you, Tom. So here's where I think they are doing things which they shouldn't be doing. I mean, I mean I'm going to give particular examples, right? So clearly the parliamentary scrutiny is, is, is quite tricky. Uh, but they've taken a decision that all MPs now have to swear an oath to the the new king, which will take a parliamentary time before there's a recess for party conferences. And also, um, I mean, this is kind of out with parliamentary scrutiny, but, you know, quasi Quarteng, the new chancellor, is going to be um, giving a kind of mini budget, even though it's probably not going to be called that in the next couple of days. And he's refused the offer of help from the independent office for budget responsibility to go over the figures. Um, it sounds, I mean, I mean, I think there's some things where they haven't been avoiding, but I think in these two cases they are avoiding things, and I think it's a deliberate choice so, myself. That's what I feel. Do we know that the second of those is definitely to do with the 
death of the Queen. I mean, there are all sorts of government policies in recent years where the government hasn't let the policy be scrutinised as much as it ordinarily would. That's, that, that I don't, might well be I mean, you could, you could argue that the reason that they think they can kind of get away with that at the moment is because of how much distraction there is, but that's yeah. quite hard to determine. You know. Quick fact yeah. check. How, how much parliamentary time has actually been lost? How many sessions were cancelled? Does anyone know? I don't know off the top of my head, but I, but I believe it should have been sitting yeah. for, for, for at least a week. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, the, the point is it's not difficult to imagine how this could have been done differently. You know, if Liz Truss had sort of stood up in Parliament and said, you know, we are, you know, very patriotic, we are Her Majesty's government. That is what we are known as. We are here to serve the people and Her Majesty. And there is such a lot of important work that needs to be done urgently now. The um, to to to, to fulfil that duty to Her Majesty, to Her Late Majesty, um, we are going to have to continue to to work and to put our policies for the scrutiny of Parliament. That would have been a, a highly principled and totally unobjectionable announcement. Who would have said this is absurd? The government should, should it's just that's just disrespectful. You know, stop working and just go home and mourn for a week. You know, stop running the country. That would have been a ridiculous thing to say. So it does seem like it was just too, too convenient. And, of course, you know, I mean, governments, it's the oldest trick, democratic, despotic, no matter what kind of government you've got, most governments will take the um, advantage of any kind of, like, crisis or or <laughs> it's not a crisis, whatever it might be, a major event to kind of uh, a useful distraction. People do like it, and it, it, should, it shouldn't, have, they shouldn't have got away with it. And, again, the respect trap there, you know, probably the opposition didn't fight back enough against this because, you know, Keir Starmer doesn't want to be on the front page of the Daily Mail as, you know, um, you know, Starmer, the person who sort of like, you know, objected to MPs doing their proper mourning, you know. So, he, you know, they didn't push back on this and say, actually, no, we should be working. That's the best way to serve her. But imagine, imagine if that sort of respect argument was made during the worst of the pandemic right that if people said look so, so many people have died it's absolutely awful what we need is kind of week of no government so we can all kind of take stock and more i think that would have been ridiculed right it's a time when you need more more kind of government not less and that's that's something which is far more tragic than the death of one individual so what is it about this one that means suddenly pausing government pausing running the country is appropriate um, I mean, I'm actually, I'm going to agree here that I think that that kind of was excessive. Precisely, um, you've persuaded me, Julian, that there were ways of making this respectful. So you have, they have prayers at the start of each day in Parliament. They can pray for for the late Queen. They can wear morning clothes. You know, they can black armbands or whatever for doing the thing. When they have um, Prime Minister's question time, there's always that first question where people add the bit about, and I want to express my immense sorrow at the lot. We've got all these ritualized ways of of showing respect that we could have utilized quite easily there. Um, and, and similarly with the oath swearing, um, I remember reading, there's no actual need for everybody to swear an oath to the king because when they swore their oath on on getting sworn in, they swore to um, Her Majesty and her heirs and successors. 
And so unless anyone's disputing whether Charles is the rightful heir, um, the oath should cover them already. Okay, listen, uh, thanks all three of you. I think we're going to leave um, things there. Fascinating discussion, uh, as always. Uh, we should say thank you to all three of you for, for coming on today. So thanks, Graham, for, for coming on. Thanks. Uh, and Julian, thanks to you for appearing again. Uh, thank you, Simon. Always a pleasure. And uh, Tom, great to have you with us for the first time. We'll definitely have you back on. Thanks to you. Thanks very much. I look forward to it. And to all of you listening, thanks uh, for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you'll be listening to another episode of Policy Takes on the News soon.